You're listening to the Parkview Church Training Podcast, where we equip you to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about Parkview or give to our ministry, please visit parkviewchurch.org. Hello, Parkview Church. This is Thomas, your executive pastor, and I am here with our beloved college pastor, pastor for college students, the last six years, Wade Urig. Wade, when did you start at Parkview? What was your first day? Do you remember? July 17th of okay, 2017. So, okay. So we're almost exactly six years? Yep. Okay. Exactly. And when is your last day at Parkview? Tomorrow. Uh, and we're recording on this staff. on June 29th, Thursday, June 29th. So tomorrow is June 30th. And, uh, well, brother, we're so sad to see you go. And we're so happy for where you're going because I feel so certain that the Lord is going to bless your ministry in Naperville. So Wade is going to Naperville Presbyterian Church. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you're going, why you're excited, why you sense the Lord has called you there? Sure. Yeah, Naperville Presbyterian Church is in Naperville, Illinois. And uh, it's a Presbyterian Church, part of the Presbyterian Church in America, PCA, which is the conservative, theologically conservative denomination uh, for Presbyterians in America. And I went to Covenant Seminary, which is the flagship seminary of the PCA. And over the years, I've been um, personally mentored and cared for and shepherded by one of my close friends and mentors, a man named Dane. And he's the lead pastor there at NPC. And so over the years, we've always dreamed together. Hey, wouldn't it be fun if we did ministry together and as time has gone on, the Lord just opened doors and allowed mm. for this call to move into gospel partnership uh, there at, at NPC. And, mm-hmm. and even the people there and the staff, they're truly just wonderful Christian people, just like here at Parkview. And so we're just thrilled uh, to be moving to mm-hmm. NPC as our hearts are breaking and our, our eyes are crying as we leave here at Parkview Church. Um, my focus will be on uh, training and the next generation of pastors. So young men will be going into a nine-month training program called the Gospel Training Center. And my role will be to shepherd them, personally shepherd them and train them and teach them through that process. Mm. That won't start until next year. So really, this first year is all about um, completing the ordination process in the PCA mm-hmm. uh, and then helping with Sunday morning worship in different ways and then uh, teaching classes mm-hmm. and personally investing in college students. There's a lot of college students at the church, and so I'll be personally shepherding and helping them grow in Christ, loving them. Excellent. Yeah. And you have some family in that area too, is that right? Well, Claire's Normal? parents live an hour, 45 minutes south in okay. Bloomington Normal. Okay. So. Kind of. Yeah. A little closer. That's right. A little yeah. closer, yeah. Okay. What college is there, by the way? Uh, there's a few, there's North central college, which is nearby Naperville. Mm -hmm. And then Wheaton college is about 25 minutes away from, and you are alum. Nay, Ness. Right. Of that. That's right. Institution. Great. Well, so, so thrilled for that, for you, Wade. Um, I was just uh, laughing to myself as you were talking about Dane because not long ago we had Dane on this very podcast and you were you That's and right. I had a little interview time with Dane to talk about his book Gentle and Lowly. Yep. Many of our community groups are reading this summer and 
played a little prank on Dane because at that point we knew that Wade was likely heading out to Naperville to work with Dane. wasn't public at that point, but um, I had had Devin stop the recording right at the end, and I said, "Oh, one more question: How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) How dare you take Wade away from us?" And um, he didn't think that was funny at all. I'm just kidding. He did, Uh, but we had a good laugh. So. For, for a while, we've kind of had a fun connection with Dane, and I think especially, you know, Doug Fern and I always kind of looked at each other after we would meet up with Dane and kind of go, when's he going to steal him? When's he going to steal Wade away from us? And sure enough, uh, it's it's happened, but we're overjoyed, and we know they'll be blessed by your ministry, brother. So what I've asked Wade to do uh, is to do something we thought it's not probably not appropriate for a sermon time, probably not appropriate for an aside on a Sunday, uh, it's not, doesn't quite fit a sort of classroom context. There's, there's nowhere for this probably, but this, um, which is to ask him to give kind of a final charge, words of wisdom, uh, gospel charge to the people of Parkview. We just right. honor you and, and appreciate your ability to just call us forward to our mission, uh, and to just to the Lord Jesus. And so that's what I've asked Wade to do. So, uh, buckle in. I have not heard this. I'm excited to hear it myself and um, just learn and grow and receive kind of a final blessing from Wade. So mm. with that, great. I'm going to turn it over to Wade. Go for it. Great. Thank you so much. Wonderful Devin and Magnificent Thomas for this opportunity. This is great. Parkview Church, blessings to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am thrilled to share my heart for you all from God's word one final time. And I told Claire today, as I was thinking and and praying about this, I feel like I've sort of been preparing these words for Parkview for the past six years. And so just thankful to the Lord for this opportunity. And my prayer has been that this is a, um, the fruit of this, the Lord uses and and bears fruit through this um, for, for some time here at Parkview. And this podcast is just a means of deep, refreshing love and encouragement to your heart. So what I want to persuade you of in these final words to this magnificent congregation is this. It's that the the unique love of Jesus Christ for us creates a unique love for one another. That's the whole point of this time, this podcast. The unique love of Jesus Christ for us creates a unique love for one another. And this is what glorifies God as we make whole disciples. And I'm going to be focusing on John 13. And I've just been thinking and meditating on John 13, 34 to 35, where the Lord Jesus says this, As I have loved you, so you also must love one another. By this, by this love, all people will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another. The same reality that John, one of his apostles, the disciples of Jesus, who was sitting in the room as he heard the words spoken in John 13, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, says in 1 John 4, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so our love for one another as Christians demonstrates the reality of Christ in this world. And so as Parkview Church moves forward and we're making whole disciples for the glory of Christ, let's make sure that love for one another is a non-negotiable priority for our mission as we make disciples. I mean, in a negative way, 
uh, the watching world around us peers into our churches. And if all they see is the same exhausting gossip or betrayal or anger, judgmentalism, and division that they see around them in their families or workplace or neighborhood, who would want to be a part of that? Who wants to add more exhaustion on Sundays to their already overwhelmed, exhausted lives living in this crazy modern world? It's better to sleep in, skip church, than just add more drama and anger and madness. I mean, think of it, right? If there's little Freddie, he enjoys friendship and fun with uh, his friend, little Johnny, at the neighborhood playground. And little Freddie loves being Johnny's friend. But Freddie won't invite Johnny to come over to his house if mom and dad have created an environment in their home of criticism, anger, lack of safety, etc. There's nothing positive at home, then Freddie has really, in the end, nothing to welcome Johnny into. But if Freddie's home is filled with love and peace, laughter, welcome, dignity, joy, then Johnny can come over anytime. And Johnny will feel a unique atmosphere of sweetness in that home. So here Jesus is saying, if his love creates a new reality of love for one another, then there is in a church, a culture that has an irresistible beauty to it, an atmosphere, a sweetness of the atmosphere that is irresistible to the outside world. Where struggling people can step into Parkview Church and feel like they've arrived safely in a refuge from the storm of the chaos during the week. People can feel like they are becoming human again, loved and cherished and rejoiced in rather than used and shamed and treated as a consumer, which so often happens in our world today. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in the South, and he said the Lord had worked such beauty into his church that there was one congregant, a man came up to this pastor at the end of the service, and he said, when I come to this church, it feels like I'm being loved by God. And uh, Ray Ortland, the pastor uh, and author, he calls this gospel culture, gospel culture, where the undeserving love of Christ for sinners vertically creates a new reality of relationships with one another horizontally. It's a taste of heaven on earth. And so Parkview, as we make whole disciples, it is a non-negotiable priority that is essential that we must continue to love one another as Jesus has loved us. So again, the whole point, Christ's unique love for us creates a unique love for one another. So now we must ask, how exactly does Jesus love us? We don't have to wonder. God tells us. John 13, 1 says this, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, speaking here of the crucifixion, just around the corner for Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Notice, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John is saying that as you read the Gospels, the lens by which you need to see all of Jesus' miracles and teachings and rebukes and whatever it is that Jesus is doing, what he's doing at bottom is loving his people. 19th century pastor Robert Murray McShane says it like this, the four gospels are a narrative of the heart of Christ. They show his compassion to sinners and his glorious work in their place. When Jesus feeds hungry people by multiplying bread as the bread of life, he's loving. When Jesus teaches the people in the Sermon on the Mount, he's loving them. When Jesus turns water into wine, He loves them. Jesus warns people of their sin. It's love. When Jesus thunders against self-righteous, judgmental Pharisees, it's a form of love. When Jesus raises a little girl from death, 
an echo of his eternal new creation without death and sadness. Jesus is loving. At every point, Jesus is, is love. But John says Jesus loves them to the end. Richard Dawkins and many of the famous atheists today say that at bottom of our existence is nothing good, no purpose, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's a horrific foundation to build your life upon. But in Jesus Christ, as it says in Jeremiah, underneath our lives are the everlasting arms of our loving Lord. His love is an eternal overflowing fountain for you. It never dries up. There's never a point at which Jesus stops loving his people. There's a personal story to capture this whole idea. When Claire and I were in the delivery room at Mercy Hospital a few months ago, or I guess a month ago, May 8th, here in Iowa City, Claire, ready to receive our little boy, Packer. Claire was prepped for a C-section. And so I walk in, I sit down. The doctor says, okay, we're ready to go. And just at that moment, the doctor about to start this all-important life-changing operation for my wife, future child, the power goes out at Mercy Hospital. Total blackout. 15 seconds. Total darkness in the room. A generator had blown right at the moment of this surgery. Now, praise the Lord, the power came back on, the surgery went well, we welcomed Packer, and we rejoiced. But here we see Jesus in John 13 saying he loves his own precious people to the end. There's never a moment, Parkview, when his love will go black out on you, when his love shuts down. The love of Jesus is not a broken power generator ready to stop at the moment when you most need him. At the moment in your life of desperate need, John 13, Jesus tells us he loves you till the end. There's never a moment when the love of Jesus stops for you, not a millisecond. So maybe here you could even pause the podcast and allow Jesus to love you again. Maybe some of us need to quietly and gently repent of our unbelief that we think maybe Jesus has forsaken us or maybe because of that certain area in our life that Jesus has actually stopped loving us. But John 13 tells us he loves us to the end. His love is eternal. He loves us always and forever. But there's more. Yes, Jesus' love is eternal. He loves us to the end. But John 13 says the love of Jesus is radically humble. It goes to the lowest, the worst parts of our lives and serves us at our deepest need. You probably know what happens next. John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Theologians call this the excellency of Christ. Here we see two seeming contradictory virtues married together in one person. Jesus, verse 3, knowing the Father had given him all things, he had come from God, was going back to God. He then bends down and washes his disciples' feet. In the first century, the nastiest, dirtiest part of you, as you walk around without Nike running shoes on to cover your feet from all the grime and filth. So what do we have here? The Lord of the universe, one with the Father, in power and glory and honor and holiness, bending down as a nobody, no-nothing servant, doing the most nastiest task, which was delegated to the most unworthy people in that day, washing feet. When I was at Wheaton College, my freshman year, there's a foot washing ceremony to kind of symbolize the student body is, is there to, to serve one another. It was great. There's two things, though, that stood out to me as I looked back. Number one, I was so embarrassed 
to have my stinky feet washed by someone else. I just felt exposed and weird. And that, I think, does point to something about the human condition. That it's weird even to have our feet exposed, but what about the deepest parts of our heart and our soul exposed before the holy living God? And uh, and yet, it was the fellow students washing one another's feet, you know? But guess who was not there washing feet? The one person who was not there was the president of Wheaton College. And why should he be there, honestly? He's got crucial institutional governing leadership responsibilities to ensure that all these young people get a solid liberal arts education. So what's happening here in John 13, the glorious Lord of the universe who has crucial world governing leadership responsibilities, the second person of the Trinity with all power and glory and honor, he's washing his disciples' feet. We've never seen anyone like Jesus Christ in history. There is no love like the love of Christ. Highest resplendent holiness, married to the humblest compassionate love for weak, dirty, sinful people exposed in all of our shame and disobedience and failure. Jesus is the terrifying lion of power that when he returns, it says in Revelation, with such fierce glory, people will want rocks to fall on them rather than face his judgment for their unrepentant sin. And at the very same time, Jesus says he is meek and gentle and lowly in heart. He comes as a foot-washing lamb, lion and a lamb, the most excellent Lord Jesus. And this is who is ruling the cosmos right now. The most holy one has become the servant of all. And there's a wonderful story about Billy Graham that I think captures this in a powerful way. The great 20th century evangelist, most all of us, I assume, know who Billy Graham is. And uh, during the early 50s, Billy Graham was becoming an international superstar. I think the stats were that next to the president of the United States, Billy Graham was the most recognized person in the entire world. Um, In the early 50s, of course, was the Korean War. And so to show his support to the troops, Billy went to go visit the troops to encourage them, to strengthen them, and to give them a word uh, from Christ. And there's this amazing moment where Billy enters a hospital filled with, at that time, it was the most wounded soldiers from the war who were still alive but so severely wounded. And one man was so badly wounded from shrapnel on his back that he had to lie on his front looking face down on the floor for hours and hours and hours. I mean, what a miserable place to be. And so here's Billy Graham, global superstar, with access to the White House and power to persuade millions of people to follow Christ. There's Billy Graham in the hospital looking at the misery of this young soldier lying face down. And so what Billy Graham does is he gets on his hands and knees, he flops onto his back, he moves underneath the bed where this man is lying on, he looks him right in the face, And he speaks to this miserable, suffering man of the eternal love of Jesus Christ as tears are pouring out of his eyes. Part of you, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory and power, sees you in your miserable sin and suffering, and his heart was so moved in love and compassion that he got on his hands and knees, so to speak, and he went to that cross of crucifixion so that he could look you in the eye and tell you of his endless love and forgiveness for you. Part of you, there is no Love, like the endless love of Jesus Christ, who's come to serve us. The high and holy one is the meek and lowly servant. 
Revelation 1 gives us this picture of our lovely Lord. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, does not get more powerful and mighty than that. And then it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. John 13, Jesus, knowing the Father had given him all things, he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, lays aside his outer garments, takes a towel, ties it around his waist, pours water into a basin, and begins to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped wrapped around him. The utter humility and compassion of Christ for his people. This is the Lord Jesus and his love for you. So maybe you want to pause one more time here and just allow yourself right now in this moment to be loved by Jesus all over again. This Jesus, give him your sin. Give him your misery and your suffering, your discouragement right now. Let Jesus love you. He delights to love sinners like you and me. And so that's the unique sort of love that Christ has for us. I mean, all the great theologians throughout history have given testimony to this love. I think of 17th century theologian Thomas Goodwin reading the the book by Dane, Gentle and Lowly, and a lot of it's based on uh, insights he received by Thomas Goodwin, who wrote a book called The Heart of Christ uh, in Heaven for Sinners Here on Earth. And there's one of my favorite quotes. Uh, Thomas Goodwin says this about Jesus. Christ's happiness is increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy and pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Or 17th century theologian John Owen, who was a contemporary and friend of Thomas Goodwin, says this. It is the gladness of the heart of Christ, the joy of his soul to take poor sinners into this relationship with himself. He rejoices in the thoughts of it from eternity. How willing he was to undertake the hard task required to bring this relationship to a reality. I mean, what was Jesus doing, according to John Owen? What was Jesus doing 17,000 years ago in heaven? He was rejoicing at the thought of loving you and dying for you and bringing you back to the sweet and tender welcome of the Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus was doing. Our 17th century pastor, Samuel Rutherford, says it like this. Uh, I love it. He, he's, he has this book called The Loveliness of Christ. He, it's like really cheap. It's like six or seven bucks on Amazon. I recommend it to you all. It's just short snippets that he um, he wrote to these uh, letters he wrote to his uh, congregants in his church. He says this, I know that Christ is kindness and his love when we are at our weakest, and that if Christ had not gone before us in our sad days, the waters would have gone over our soul. The only thing that commends sinners to Christ is extreme necessity and want. Every day, we can see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. So lay all your loads and your weights by faith upon Christ. Ease yourself. Let him bear all. He can. He does. He will bear you. Therefore, it is our heaven to lay our many weights and burdens on Christ. Let Jesus find such employment for his calling with you. For he is such a friend as delights to be burdened with your troubles. You know this in your friendships with people that you love the most. There's something in your heart that lights up when they say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. And the next words out of their mouth, you know, you you rejoice the thought of just loving your friend, bearing their burden. And Jesus is such a friend to us. Parkview, there's nothing so sweet, so happy, so thrilling than to be loved by this Jesus. And so John 13, Jesus says, as I've loved you, so love one another. So let's make a turn now. Let's think about the love we ought to show to one another, the unique radical love of Christ, 
creates a unique radical love for one another in the church. And I use the word unique because I think people at Amazon or University of Iowa Hospital or fill in the blank with any secular institution, those coworkers probably, I hope, are able to love one another. But Jesus says that in his church, there's an otherworldly, heaven-sent, unique sort of love that's not before seen, but it's made known in how Christians love one another. And so what is that love? We could say it's many things, but I want to focus in on just one aspect of the love of Christ for us that ought to shape our lives, our love for one another. As Parkview moves forward in months and years ahead, and it's this, it's an affectionate, earnest love, an affectionate, earnest love for one another, just as Christ has loved us. We've already seen that. This is how Jesus loves us. Again, remember the quotes from those theologians or John 13 or 1 John 4, but I want to highlight a few areas in Paul's letters where he describes a sort of Christian love. Here we go. Philippians 1. And notice the language here. Philippians 1, starting in verse 7. Paul's writing to this church of Christians. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection. Here it is. Where's this loving, yearning affection come from? With the affection of Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 2 Corinthians 2.4, I want you all to know the abundant love I have for you. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. First Thessalonians 3, 6, Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Second Timothy 1, 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And it's not only Paul, and I just gave a portion of, of these statements from Paul in his letters. It's also Peter, 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The gospel of Christ, Jesus purifying us from sin, according to Peter, results in an earnest love for one another from the heart. The text does not just say, therefore, since you've been purified, love one another. It says, sincerity of brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart. And then 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter again says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. At bottom, what are we seeing here? What we're seeing, if we peel back all the layers, is we're seeing leading Christian men in the church writing and speaking to other Christians, even other Christian men, and brothers in the Lord at Parkview Church, a word to you. Let's think about this for our own lives. What does this mean for our lives as leaders in this church? Think about this. Here's leading Christian men speaking to other Christians, including other Christian men, and they cannot help but open their mouths and tell other brothers and sisters in Christ how much they love and long for and enjoy their Christian brothers and sisters. So according to the inerrant, trustworthy, fully sufficient word of God, 
And we want to be whole disciples who are following and obeying the word of God. Normal Christianity, as demonstrated by Paul's example and Peter's example in his letters, and we see it actually in uh, the letters that John writes to the churches, it's to so deeply treasure the affectionate love of Christ for you that you cannot help but overflow in affectionate longing and love for other Christians. So as Christians, we need to be so careful that our love is patterned off the Lord Jesus and not the world. The world can respect others. The world can be kind to each other. The world can be nice. The world can even love in different ways. But in the church of Jesus Christ, through his foot-washing compassion, sin-bearing death, and life-giving resurrection, our Lord Jesus creates a new reality of relationships where, yes, vertically with God, we've been given new hearts, filled with affection and joy and longing for God himself. Praise Jesus for regeneration, for new birth, for a new heart to love God and worship him as the greatest treasure of our lives. But Paul and Peter and the whole witness of the New Testament shows us that horizontally with a new heart for God comes a new heart supernaturally given by the Holy Spirit for our fellow Christians. Philippians 1.8, I yearn for you and love you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Parkview, there is nothing more thrilling in the universe than to be loved by our lovely Lord Jesus. But second to that, there's nothing more wonderful than to be parachuted into the church of this Jesus, surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ in a local church, to love them and to be loved by them. And more than that, to affectionately desire to know and love and pray and serve them. This is the great glory and splendor of why the Lord Jesus puts us into this world. Why did God make you? He made you, one of my friends likes to say, he made you so he could love you. And he made one another so that we could love one another with a joy that is otherworldly and given from Christ himself, the affection of Christ Jesus. So let's all join Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin and Gandalf and Aragorn on the greatest adventure this world has ever seen, a fellowship of redeemed humans created in the image of God, ruined and marred by sin, and yet redeemed through the blood of Christ so that we would shine with the infinite beauty of Christ's love for us and how we love one another. The future heaven that Jesus is going to give to us, the new creation, we can get a taste of that right now and how we love. This is the sort of love that ripples into eternity with light and high beauty forever, as J.R. Tolkien likes to say it. I'll close with this. This sort of love always makes me think of Sarah Smith, a fictional character in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. It's an allegorical tale about a bus ride of people from hell that go to heaven, and the people from hell end up meeting people in heaven they knew on earth and every person from heaven is trying to help their friend or family member or colleague or whoever it is from hell to repent of their self-centered idol that is keeping them and blocking them from the eternal happiness of knowing God in heaven. And at the end of the book, one of the most moving depictions of the Christian life, I think in literature, it's just absolutely 
gorgeous. We meet a woman named Sarah Smith, and she represents the Christian ideal of self-giving affectionate love for others in Christ. What we've been talking about here, as Jesus talks about in John 13, and we see in the letters of Paul and Peter. Lewis paints the picture this way. It's a conversation between the narrator and a person from heaven, and this person is, is his teacher. And so I've just slightly edited this segment uh, so you kind of know where we're at in the conversation. But here's how it goes. Uh, the narrator says, Then I saw on the left and the right at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them meant, went musicians. And after these, a lady in whose honor all of this was being done. Is this, is this, I whispered to my guide, thinking it was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not at all, he said. It's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. Well, she seems to be a person of particular importance. Yes, my teacher said. She is one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in heaven and fame on earth are two quite different things. So then who are all these young men and women on each of her side? I asked. They are her sons and daughters, said my teacher. Well, she must have had a very large family, sir, I replied. Every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door, every girl that met her was her daughter. Well, isn't that a bit hard on their own parents, I asked? No, said the teacher. There are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Every person that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is a joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as that lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Parvi, let's be amazed at our Lord and how he's designed this world and his church. As Lewis says here, we're coming into full strength and the abundance of life and affection, just like Sarah Smith, that you and I have in Christ from the Father that flows into one another. There is joy in our affectionate love for one another that can wake all the dead things of this universe into life. We all long for greatness. We all long to be great in our generation. And as the teacher says, greatness on earth is very different than greatness in heaven. Greatness in heaven is an overflowing, affectionate love for one another that blesses and has eternal consequences for the glory of Christ. So let's go there together. Let's let Jesus love us all over again with all the compassionate holiness of the affection of his heart. And then let's wake, I love how Lewis says it, right? Let's wake the dead things of this world here in Iowa City, here in Johnson County. Let's w wake the dead things to life with our otherworldly, God-created, spirit-given, overflowing, affectionate love for one another. Parkview, 
the unique love of Jesus Christ for us creates a unique love for one another. So Parkview, thank you, thank you, thank you on behalf of Claire and my boys. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us. But also, thank you for giving us the high honor and dignity and sheer happiness and thrill of getting to love you. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 Being affectionately desirous of you, Claire and I were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you have become very dear to us. And so I'll close with this final word of benediction that I've spoken to you so many times. And every time I've spoken it over you in church, I've done so with a heart full of love, affectionate love for you. The Lord gives us this in Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you. I love you.